Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Our hearts are overflowing with gratitude this morning at the great privilege of acknowledging once again the salvation that gloriously saved us from the miry clay of sin and set our spiritual feet on our cornerstone and rock, Jesus Christ. We pray that in your word we would find refuge there this morning. We, your people, Lord, languish still under the remnants, Lord, of our old nature as it's dying and leaving us and we are being sanctified in this world surrounds us, Lord, with the pressures of its fallenness. Yet we have hope in Christ. We have eternal life and what you have purchased on Calvary, Lord, at the cost of your blood. And we have sufficient ground and encouragement in your scriptures and through the means that you supply to be strengthened for the calling you have on our lives. I pray this morning that you would bind us together in unity as you speak to us authoritatively through your word. I pray, Lord, that you would use the unlikely vessel that brings the word this morning and that you would anoint the ear for hearing this day so that our flesh may not get in the way of the truth and life that we find in the pages of what's before us this morning. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to understand your infallible word, we pray this day. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. What a great privilege to open up the scriptures together this morning, and I would invite you to do so by turning to 2 Samuel chapter 24 with me today. 2 Samuel chapter 24. As you're turning there, I'll give you the title of today's message, David's Last Days. David's Last Days. The end of the book of 2 Samuel records some events that happened at the end of David, the great king of Israel's reign. They are significant for us today, and this morning they even tie into the message that Pastor Joe brought us last week, and this was a message I've been preparing or thinking about for some time. And though we certainly didn't collude with one another to have a theme that ties them together, the Holy Spirit must have known, so that brings encouragement to me today. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word in reverence? With your Bible open, and we'll read the entire chapter of 2 Samuel 24 together. The Scriptures say, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad, and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh, in the land of the Hittites, they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon, and came to the fortress of Tyre, and all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites, and they went out to the Negeb of Judah, to Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem, at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel, There were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000, verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. 14. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress 
let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out its hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, who is working destruction among the people, It is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arna the Jebusite. When David spoke to the Lord, when then David spoke to the Lord, when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Verse 18, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arna, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded, and when Arna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him, and Arna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. <coughs> and Arna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what he seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arna gives to the king. And Arna said to the king, The Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. to the. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I'll give you a brief description before a heading and some points to draw our attention to at this narrative and account in the narrative at the close of David's reign. Today our title is David's Last Days and we're asking ourselves what did the Holy Spirit choose to record and why at the tail end of this important king's reign and rule in this important nation, namely Israel. There are typological, that is, elements that symbolize important spiritual truths in David himself and in the, in the nature of his rule. And this is what we find indeed in David's last days. For your attention, and because we'll turn there a couple times, I'll have you note that in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, there's a parallel account. And it indeed in some ways expands what I just read you today. For obvious reasons, namely time, we won't read it this morning at length, but we'll touch on a few things that 1 Chronicles shares with us to complement the record in 2 Samuel 24. The first word of our chapter this morning, though, in 2 Samuel 24, 1, indicates a context, a note of context, and begs the question, to what former occasion for the anger of the Lord does the author refer? Drawing your attention again to 2 Samuel 24, 1, again, that's the key word there, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, for he indicted David against them, saying... This must, something must have happened before akin to the circumstances that we read of here. And this is where we have a tie-in to last week's message, the Rizpah story that Joe Reed gave us from a few chapters earlier, namely 2 Samuel 21. To what former occasion then does this verse refer? Well, it seems that it is clear in the context that at least one occasion of the Lord's anger stirred up against the Israelites was the breaking of the covenant with the Gibeonites that occasioned a need for atonement in the land and until seven men were hung and the land was atoned for, God's anger did not abate and three years of famine were endured because of Saul, King Saul, who preceded David, his disobedience. The clearest hint of this comes in the final verse of chapter 24 in 2 Samuel. If you'll notice in verse 25, David built an altar and then in closing, the closing sentence so the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. 
There was a plea for the land, a cry that went out, an anguish under suffering for atonement and relief from this pestilence. Notice how similar that is to the end of the Rizpah account in 2 Samuel 21. If you turn back a few pages, you'll notice in verse 14. It says, And they buried the stones of Saul and his son, Jonathan, in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. So you notice the conclusion of both accounts, which are nearly back to back, the end of David's reign. There is this idea of a plea for the land, a need for atonement, something that is not right, that is incurring fearsome judgment. And only upon a satisfactory price being paid, a sacrifice being offered, and real uh, steps to acknowledge sin and to repent and pay the price accordingly, do we see relief of the conditions. In the one case, three years of famine. In the second case, 70,000 dead due to pestilence. God responded to the plea for the land in both cases. The incident in chapter 21, it may not have been situated in 2 Samuel. This is interesting to note chronologically. Last week when Joe was reading that to us, I thought, well, this must be at the beginning of Saul, or David's reign, just after the transition from Saul to David. After all, Mephibosheth is mentioned. That was uh, Jonathan's son, whom David had made a covenant with Jonathan to look after his family. Also, it seems since the bones, the remains of Saul and Jonathan are still exposed, that they'd be laying out there more than likely relatively soon after they died and so on, or at least had been confiscated by the enemies. David noticed these things, and it would make sense for him to notice them earlier on in his reign. So why then does this story appear later in the record in 2 Samuel? This is a hint. Oftentimes the Bible records things in a specific way, not because it's full of contradictions, not because the Bible's accuracy of history is somehow to call into question, not at all. That's what the humanist, short-sighted uh, critic and cynic of biblical uh, theology might have you believe. But instead, the Bible records things primarily and sometimes in a way where these clues draw our attention to something uh, it's historical and it's beyond. It's a theological truth. And in this case, I submit to you that these stories toward the end of David's reign highlight this theme. The cry of the land for atonement on account of covenant-breaking sin is a featured theme in the biblical record of King David's waning reign and his bittersweet legacy. At the end of David's reign, the greatest king in some measures we could say, short of Christ, of all of Israel, the stories that are chosen to highlight, we must assume are of particular importance to the author, namely the Holy Spirit. What are we to learn from them? There seems a theme that is congruent between these two accounts. The cry of the land for atonement, because covenant-breaking sin has corrupted the environment. And it's plaguing the people. And if a step is not made, if a serious sacrifice is not made, then the people will continue to die in droves, either by, either by famine or by disease. Here's a heading for you. Closing chapters of David's reign highlight the following. Three major points this morning under this general theme. First of all, sin and sovereignty. We find that the sovereignty of God, even and circumscribing the sinfulness of man and evil, as we find it in our world today, is a theme that's highlighted at the end of David's reign, sin and sovereignty. Secondly, conviction and judgment. The conviction of that sin, the judgment that it deserves. And also, thirdly, intercession. And thanks be to God and His grace, atonement. The closing chapters of David's reign highlight sin and sovereignty. They highlight, secondly, conviction and judgment. And thirdly, they highlight intercession and atonement. Let's notice with a little closer attention to how sin and sovereignty are featured in this account. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, as I mentioned the parallel text. While you're turning there, I want to read to you again the phrase in Samuel, 2 Samuel 24. Of note, again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. In the notes that I have on the commentary that accompanies my study Bible, it says of the original language, 
The antecedent of he is the Lord. So in the original language in Hebrew, when the, the pronoun he is used, to what does it refer? The Lord. That is to say, it is clear in the original text that the Lord incited David against them, saying, according to the Hebrew scholars that have compiled the commentary here. Now, notice something different, though, as we turn to 1 Chronicles 21. It says in verse 1, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Do we see a potential problem here? In the one account, God is listed as inciting David to take a census. In the second account, Satan himself is listed, is identified as the one who moves or incites David to number Israel. So what are we to make of this? Are there contradictions in the Bible? Never let it be said. Let me pass along to you something that I have learned in Scripture. When the short-sighted idolater, when those who are cynical and fancy themselves a judge over God's Word, analyze scriptures, and they come up with supposed problems. In each and every case, the problem is them. They do not see the depth of what's recorded here because as of yet, the Spirit has not given them the eyes to see. I would encourage you, as you dig in deep into scripture, what you will find is apparent problems actually carry deep within them weighty truth. When there's an apparent problem in the text, what you will find is the truth is deeper than you first imagined. Dig a little bit and you will find this. The confessions, the great ones of the faith, that speak to sin and sovereignty and God's utter and complete control, even in a world where evil for a time abounds, say things like this. This is from the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. God's decree. From all eternity, God decreed all that should happen in time, and this He did freely and unalterably, consulting only his own wise and holy will. Yet in doing so, he does not become in any sense the author of sin, nor does he share responsibility for sin with sinners. And it goes on to say, neither by reason of his decree is the will of any creature whom he has made violated. So you see what is acknowledged here. First, that God is utterly sovereign. Secondly, that God is not the author of sin. How can both be true? Well, I'll remind you of what happened to Job himself at the beginning of that great book. Now, the actions of God were mysterious to Job because when he was going through his deep and dark trial, he was not privy to this conversation. Yet we have the scriptures and we can, as it were, eavesdrop into the celestial and hear what was happening at the throne of heaven prior to the great sorrows and suffering that Job experienced. And as we listen to that conversation, this is what we find, Job 1.6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears the Lord and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch your hand. So Satan went from the presence of the Lord. What is going on here? Well, the Lord is granting power to Satan to afflict his servant, yet he puts boundaries on him. He says, you may touch all of this about him, but you cannot take his life. Do you see the hand of Satan himself is utterly restrained by the Lord to prevent him from doing what God will not allow? And yet the hand of Satan is released by the Lord in certain instances, so that he acts as God's sovereign agent to accomplish a certain thing. Satan is a tool in the hands of Almighty God. That is how great our God is. When we go back to our text in question this morning, 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21, that truth is simply here in view. It was God 
who was active in this event. And it was God who indeed used Satan to influence David to make this choice so that the occasion of his sin would be the reference point of judgment on a people who deserved it for their hatred of the Lord in their collective covenant breaking. That is certainly amazing and deep indeed. In the New Testament, these truths are recorded for us in bold colors as well. Acts chapter 4, 27 through 28. What do we have confessed from the mouth of those who have now received the Holy Spirit and see the sovereign hand of God in history, especially as it relates to atonement? They affirm that God in His sovereignty aligned for Himself, assembled for Himself, all the pieces and all the persons who would be involved in the slaughter of His own Son. And by His predestined plan, they took Christ's life into their hands and He was killed on the brutal cross of Calvary. Why? Because Satan for once, for a little moment, got the upper hand. Never let it be said. Because Satan was an agent and even Herod himself and Pilate and the soldiers that drove the nails into his hands and feet were tools in God's hand to sacrifice Christ, his son, for the atonement of our sins. In the final chapters of the greatest human king of Israel, we see God's Sovereignty over evil featured in both of these stories, the Rizpah account, as well as the census that David takes. The Bible is much more emphatic than you and I sometimes are bold enough to be. We find ourselves saying like, God does not cause, but He allows, or things of that nature. We tend to be a little squeamish about the objection from the unbeliever that, how can a good God do thus and so? Oh, have you ever read your Old Testament? What is the right response to those types of things? I would encourage you to read the prophets. Did the prophets ever minimize the sovereignty of God in His righteous judgments? Never. The prophets who were hearing and proclaiming His holy word stepped forward against the objector and said, you will find yourself in the same position if you do not repent this day. Do not question the God of Scripture. Or you will be one more example of his sovereign hand, if not in this life at the final judgment. It is appointed for everyone to die. And the only safe way, the only way to escape that utter and ultimate judgment is for death to be defeated in Jesus Christ our Lord. What is so sinful about a census? Law and census. Turn with me if you would to Exodus chapter 30. What was it that David did wrong? It wasn't, after all, unequivocally wrong to take a census. There were censuses, if that's the plural of the word, that were commanded in Scripture. But they were for a specific purpose. David, as God's delegated agent of justice and rule, had to follow to a T his instructions for how to lead his people. And any offense in that regard was certainly egregious. And one of the examples of his sin is featured in this unjust sentence. Notice what Exodus 30 verse 11 says. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Do you notice the command here? There is an atonement offering, if you will, if you take a census of the people, do it for the cause of actually encouraging them to give to the Lord an offering. As they do so, this will increase and magnify the presence and the power and the work of God among them as this money is employed in tabernacle worship. This half shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, verse 13 tells us, the shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. We might ask the question, why was a plague visited upon the people? Why was a plague prescribed as a judgment option? In the case of 2 Samuel 24 and David's unjust sentence, well, it is very likely that he simply disobeyed God's law. When God says, if you go out and number the people, 
number the ones 20 and above, and make sure that you give, that you take an atonement offering. If you do not, atonement will not be made, and the people will stand in a place uncovered, and a plague will befall them. Likely what David did is simply disobey the Lord and conduct this census for other reasons. Not to glorify the Lord, but perhaps to reassure himself that there were plenty of swordsmen in Israel to defend him from the enemies who never seemed to stop plaguing the borders of this land. What well, we will find in due course, especially in 1 Chronicles 21, that the real sword to fear is not the sword of your enemies, and the real sword to trust is not the sword of your soldiers. The real sword both to fear and to trust is the sword of the Lord. And when this judgment took place, the sword of the Lord was in the hands of the angel of the Lord, and it wreaked great havoc, eliminating 70,000 among them. Third point under sin and sovereignty. There's a biblical doctrine that stands squarely against the humanist, the radical self-worshipper, the individualist, the autonomy-loving self-made man who embraces his original sin and says, that's not fair. I asked my kids a question this last week as we were studying a little bit further the story of Mizpah. Again, you remember the covenant was broken by Saul when uh, the promise to the Gibeonites not to attack them was made some 400 years prior. Saul disregarded that. He went and attacked them anyways. God held all of Israel accountable for Saul's mistake. And so I asked my children, do you think that's fair? Why is it the case that Israel, all the land, received a famine for three years on account of the king's decision? The same question is apropos in this story, is it not? It was David who chose to take the census, even against the better judgment of his general Joab. Yet all of the land, David himself escaped the sword of the Lord, but 70,000 were destroyed by pestilence. Why did this happen? The biblical doctrine that stands squarely against this objection is called federal headship or representative headship. As you find in Romans 5, 19 through 21, for by one man's disobedience, sin entered the world. So through one man's obedience, salvation is available for you and me. This is the doctrine of federal headship in view in scripture. The king himself represented the people. The king's actions would either benefit the people by blessing or curse them by judgment, depending on how he conducted his affairs. And let me tell you, we ought to take this very seriously because this principle still stands this day. If you are in charge of anything, fathers in your family, for instance, your negligence will reap judgment to some degree on your family or at least chastening. If you do not follow consistently and thoroughly what God prescribes, how you are to lead and guide and nurture and protect on your home front. In the same way, mothers, your children, in the same way, anyone who might have a position of authority in a business or government or otherwise, we ought to take very seriously our faithfulness to the Lord and the consequences of that activity to others around us. As we've mentioned before, no one sins in a vacuum. The consequences of one man's sin are not limited to himself, but they extend far beyond. But notice what the objector often fails to realize. These 70,000 that died, it's not like they didn't deserve it. Again, 24.1, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he indicted David against them, saying, God was bringing a lawsuit against his faithless people, and then when David committed a sin, that representative act was the occasion to dispense judgment to kill 70,000. In this case, everyone who died had it coming both as an individual and as a collective under the representative head, David. But think about this, brothers and sisters. There is a disproportionality to federal headship in Christ. Though all die in Adam, are dead in fact in Adam and deserve it, all are alive in Christ and we did not contribute one single good work. This is the glory and this is the grace of this biblical truth in action. When Jesus kept the law perfectly on our behalf, when he died in our stead, that imputed righteousness credited to our account cleanses us from all sin 
And what did we do to earn it? Absolutely nothing. Praise the Lord for this truth. Because if it were not so, you and I and all that have ever been born in Adam would be condemned to hell eternally. Second major point this morning. Closing chapter of David's reign highlights conviction and judgment. Notice again in 2 Samuel 24, <coughs> verse 10, as David's heart is moved to view now in light of truth what he has done. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer or prophet, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord. I'll pause there and note the relationship between the word of God and conviction of sin and repentance of the same. There is always a relationship inseparable between the two. When the word of God is proclaimed, in this case, in, in, through the inspired mouth of the prophet Gad, there was conviction and repentance and submission, and there was entering into the scene truth, clarity, objectivity. What was hidden was brought into the light. David could see clearly now the problem of his decision in light of what God prescribes as righteousness. He also was able to submit to the Lord and to his corrective measures. And he was also able to cry out to the Lord for salvation. He was blind to all of these in his sin, what opened his eyes. It was namely the Spirit's use of striking his heart with the reality of what he had done and then accompanying it with the word of God that came through the prophet. We ask ourselves often, you know, what is the value of preaching these days? Some have tried to declare the end of preaching not relevant anymore given the trajectory of culture. Some have said it's only a matter of time before the West and their technological advances simply won't suffer to sit while someone proclaims the scriptures to them weekly. All of these, may, uh, all of these who say such things are ignorant of the only power of God unto salvation and the only way the human heart can be awakened. It's when the Holy Spirit uses His Word to jar us from the stupor of our sin. How can they be saved unless one is sent? How can they hear unless the word is preached? And so the Great Commission will continue as long as the Lord tarries. And as long as this earth is still revolving around the sun, His word will be proclaimed. It might be a minor remnant. It may be just here and there. It may be underground. But the preaching of the word of God brings repentance from sin. And those who are His understand its value. David was blessed to have a prophet accompany him. Saul was accompanied by an evil spirit that brought him insanity. Every action of Saul past that point where his heart was not with the Lord anymore was uh, totally uh, uh, bent on killing David. God's anointed, shoring up himself, and every decision was wholly given over to utter depravity. When David was cowering from Saul under these circumstances in the cave of Adullam, you remember we preached on this recently, Gad himself came. And he was a great benefit to David. Why? Because the prophet of God was there to announce and to proclaim his word. And this tiny band of refugees stood when Saul and all the nation fell. Why? Because they had the word of God among them. And so will we, brothers and sisters. Conviction needs to come so that we steer clear of judgment and can preach the truth and repent of our sins and embrace the atoning work of Christ. This comes through the hearing and the applying of His holy word. And His means of declaring it these days is not through a Gad or a Nathan, but through the written word proclaimed even as we hear it this day. Secondly, under conviction and judgment, covenant sanctions. When a promise is broken, there are repercussions. There are laws that uh, step in to enforce. There's punishment that is doled out. And there are three that are represented in 2 Samuel 24. 
Three covenant sanctions. They're given as options from Gad to David, verse 13. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come in your land? So that's the first famine, first covenant sanction. The second option, or shall there be three days of pestilence? That's the second covenant. Or I'm sorry, that's the third. It says, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? And the third is three days of pestilence in the land. Three things, famine, sword, and pestilence. This is not arbitrary. This is not uh, Gad making up things off the top of his head. This was laid out in clear form, the sanctions of the covenant, all the way back in Deuteronomy in the giving of the law. And it's a theme throughout the scriptures. Notice in Deuteronomy 28, for instance, it says, If people are disobedient, there are curses, and they are laid out in this section. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion and frustration, and all that you undertake. Verse 21, the Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land and you are entering, that you are entering to take possession of it. 22, the Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation, fiery heart, drought. Oh, and here, here's the third. And with drought and with blight and with mildew shall, you, uh, shall pursue you until you perish. And notice verse 23, And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. So there you have it. Pestilence and famine and sword. How do you know that a nation is under judgment? To one or any degree that these are present in their midst. I couldn't help but draw an application as I read a news story this week. Venezuela is falling apart. One economist described it this way, Venezuela has run out of money to print any more money. The financial pressures, the social pressures, the breakdown of structure of healthy society and order has so affected the nation that last week, people famished and hungry began to act lawlessly. The cops could no longer hold back the throngs and we're told 5,000 individuals overran a supermarket. I saw a picture the after picture, after the throng said this mob had raided the shelves, there was refuse on the floor. You couldn't find a single item of produce on the shelves. The Ten Commandments went up in smoke as the whole nation began to fall apart. During this whole mess and chaos, there was one man who a, couple of, a bunch of people around him determined that he had stolen more than his share. Mob justice took over. They beat him to death and set him on fire. The sword and the famine has visited the nation of Venezuela. Yet, brothers and sisters, they are sitting on an oil-rich co country that makes Saudi Arabia pale in comparison, we are told. It is not for lack of resources. It is not for lack of potential wealth that this nation is suffering. It's not for lack of a government that is strong enough with enough swords to take charge. It is for a lack of acknowledging the Lord who is the God of all order and all cohesive relationship, brother to brother, man to woman, sister to uh, uh, brother and so on, government to citizen. The entire structure has broken down and what is rushed into the void is famine pestilence, and sword. Let that be a warning to us as Americans. We are throwing God's law to the wind. There are those, you can find them this day, theologians who say there is no longer a relationship between covenant sanctions and the actions of a godless government. I won't be found among them. You can expect famine, pestilence, and sword in our future if, an, if atonement does not come because our land is certainly guilty. This is the time for the prophetic voice of God's people to cut through the din of lawlessness and say, repent, because there are consequences if you do not. We're throwing away the foundation of that which brings peace and prosperity, and we will reap the whirlwind as sure as God's word still stands. Thirdly, under conviction and judgment, significance and scale. You notice the scale is 
It's, it's insane. I mean, I, it's devastating how many people die. It says in verse 15 of 2 Samuel 24, So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. You'll also notice there's something significant in the punishments, not just that they were pre-recorded as covenant sanctions in Deuteronomy 28 and elsewhere, but there are three options of three that are offered. As we look at the whole scope of atonement in Scripture, how can we bypass this connection? In Matthew 12, 38 through 42, Jesus declares to the unbelieving generation that they will receive the sign of Jonah. And there are two threes mentioned. It says the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the grave, just as Jonah himself was three days and three nights in the great fish. This is corresponding judgment language that is picked up in Christ's work on Calvary. This is to say that the scope of destruction in this world would be absolutely unfathomable if the judgment signified by that number three wasn't taken by a substitute. David chose that pestilence would visit his land for three days. Do you know what judgment we, uh, do you know what judgment is accounted against our sin? It was the sins that we committed, if you are in Christ, rolled upon Him, and then the wrath of God taken out on the cross, and those three days in the grave and three nights, that was the atoning sacrifice for our sin. This story is significant. This account is gospel-centered. It has sown within its pages, within the truth of what's recorded here, a forward-looking expectation of the judgment that Messiah, Jesus Christ, would take on our behalf. Finally, this morning, intercession and atonement. The closing chapters of David's reign highlight intercession and atonement. As we look again closely at this account, we see that there is something interesting and significant in its setting and in its characters, even Arana and the place where his farm was located. David says in verse 18, or it's recorded in verse 18, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana. The name is spelled differently in First Chronicles, it's Ornan. And Arana, the Jebusite, that's interesting, verse 18. The Jebusites, we haven't heard from them since they were defeated by David in 2 Samuel chapter 5, I believe. But here we have another representative of that people, Arana, a Jebusite. David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And Arana looked down and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. This is significant. This hill that's in view, this mountain view here is Mount Zion, where the temple would stand. We see this in 1 Chronicles 22. The very location of this man's farm ends up being the place where the temple is constructed. We also have a Jebusite that now abides there. We can assume that he himself has converted to the one true God. And we see that instead of fighting David as one of his pagan enemies, he pays homage to the king. And what does he do out of his changed heart? He seeks to give him as a gift all his material wealth and possession and possessions, presumably in order to uh, satisfy the king's desire to make atonement for the land and for the people. David refuses his offer, at least for free, gives him payment, and he says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God. That costs me nothing. But let us not miss this detail in the story. There is a character here, Arana, who was a Jebusite, a Gentile, who is now faithful to the Lord. Former enemy, a pagan, a representative of a pagan nation, is now bowing before the king who represents the people who are under the lordship of the king of kings. Later, the others would rush into the kingdom. The light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ would spill over the ethnic borders of Israel and many 
multitudes, that is, of Jebusites, so to speak, would pour into the covenant. You and I are testimony to this fact. But this man was singled out for many reasons, but among them this surprising fact that a fixture in God's redemptive story was one who was once an enemy and was associated with a pagan people. But even in the midst of a sinful world where the king of God's people himself was in sin and was now repenting, and though the testimony of the gospel was not perfect, yet God was bringing into his kingdom, even now, a foreshadowing of what would come in multitudes in the future. All nations streaming up to the mountain of the Lord, confessing faith in Jesus Christ. Notice also by way of uh, office that in this story, David himself takes on the role of prophet, priest, and king. There's another biblical truth, and that is uh, that I want to highlight at this moment, type. Typology is uh, ways that the Bible records things that speak a sermon in and of themselves or point forward or signify gospel truth. David himself, I'm sure you've heard, is a type of Christ. When David comes, or when uh, Jesus Christ himself arrives in the scene, he comes as the lineage, according to the lineage of David and is indeed identified as the son of David. And the Gospels open in the great book of Matthew with a record of that lineage and how God preserved his covenant and his promises so that the son of David came. But before him, there was one who, who signified, who symbolized what he would be. And David, in part, filled this role. Notice what he says in verse 17. Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. There is prophetic truth in what David is echoing here. We'll touch on that more in just a moment. But notice also that he is operating in his office as a king, which was his normative role. Verse 20, Arana went out, paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. But lastly, in this section, we find David doing something quite priestly, in fact. He says, I will buy... These offerings from Arna, and I will not sacrifice something that cost me nothing. David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. In verse 25, David built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. Uh, so the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. David himself, as a type of Christ, is making intercession offering a sacrifice of atonement to heal the land, as it were. And thus, in this section, we see a foreshadowing, typology, symbols that remind us that there is a king of kings to come, the son of David, who is just on the horizon, but when he arrives, he will fulfill all three roles perfectly. Final sub-point this morning, costly atonement. Under intercession and atonement, we, our attention is drawn to the costly nature of the sacrifice that atones for the land. The material cost is substantial, and David pays it willingly. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord. That costs me nothing. But the price in blood that was paid to satisfy the sanctions for broken covenant was 70,000 men. We're reminded of the story again of the broken covenant with the Gibeonites a couple chapters earlier. The price to atone for the land was hanging, the hanging death of seven of Saul's sons. You see, atonement is very expensive. Perhaps the most striking verse in all of this account and these closing chapters of David's reign is and the, uh, God, the uh, redemptive truth is highlighted again in verse 17. When David says, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. I submit to you that phrase, please let your hand be against me and against my father's house, is perhaps the most striking, the most profound of all that David has spoken in this account. You see, this came true. This was more than just a plea and an anguish cry. It was prophetic indeed. In Isaiah 53.10, we read the following. As the prophets continue to unfold the ultimate 
price that will be paid for atonement. Speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, the, the prophet says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Who is spoken of here? Who is featured here? This is the son of David. And the costly price of ultimate atonement was upon him. And it pleased the Lord indeed to crush him. Thus the hand of the Lord was against the house of David in this sense. His son one day would bear the wrath and curse of our sin so that we ourselves can receive his atoning sacrifice. In Jesus Christ's costly death alone will the Lord respond to the plea of our souls, the landscape of our hearts that cries out for atonement. And by his death, the plague of hell is averted from all who trust in his name. Praise the Lord. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have made atonement for our sin. Father, those who died, Lord, even under these horrible circumstances, if they did not place faith in the Messiah who was to come, even now, Lord Jesus, they are still under your wrath and judgment and will be so eternally. But those who have a priest, who have a prophet, who have a king in Jesus Christ, who rules over death itself, who atones by the offering of his own blood for our sin, and who has declared his word, the end from the beginning, we have a sure and ever-present help. We have hope. We have a costly atoning sacrifice that will earn for us life eternal. And so we rejoice in this this morning. We thank you for the gospel as it's delivered in 2 Samuel. We pray, Lord, as we think about these things, that you would write on the tables of our hearts the weighty truth of a holy God, that you would, Lord, instill within us a hatred and a repulsion for our own sin and a great love and appreciation and gratitude that overflows into worship for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It is in his name we pray. Amen.